Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Bryony. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in September in this Cosmic Diary. We'd like to give a special mention and our thanks to Oliver Ansel, one of our work experience students this summer, who helped put the astronomical highlights in this cosmic diary together for us. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. The month of September marks the end of summer and the beginning of autumn. Historically, the September full moon was known as the corn moon because it corresponded with the time when crops, such as corn, were gathered at the end of the summer season. But when does summer end and autumn begin? Well, it depends on whether you follow the meteorological or astronomical seasons. If you follow meteorological seasons, then autumn begins on the 1st of September. But if you follow the astronomical seasons, then autumn officially begins on the 22nd. This date isn't chosen at random. It corresponds with an event called an equinox. When an equinox occurs, the hours of daylight and darkness are approximately equal and occurs when the sun crosses something called the celestial equator, which is simply the projection of the Earth's equator in space. This happens twice per year, once in March and the other in September. In September, the sun crosses a celestial equator on the 22nd and will be moving from north to south. In the Northern Hemisphere, we call this the autumnal equinox as it marks the beginning of autumn for the Northern Hemisphere and the beginning of spring for the Southern Hemisphere. As we move beyond the autumnal equinox, the number of hours of darkness will steadily increase for those of us living in the Northern Hemisphere, which is great news for stargazers. With the new moon occurring on the 7th, the beginning of the month marks the best time to observe some of the dimmest objects in the night sky without the moon's bright light getting in the way. Try spotting our home galaxy, the Milky Way, which appears as a fuzzy band stretching across the sky. Look towards the south and you'll see the broadest part of our home galaxy lying low above the horizon. There are some wonderful deep sky objects scattered throughout the band of the Milky Way including M16, the Eagle Nebula, a massive star-forming region located somewhere between five and a half and 7,000 light years from us on the Earth. Head further up the Milky Way and you'll find M11, an open star cluster known as the Wild Duck Cluster. That's a little over 6,000 light years away. And of all the star clusters listed in the Messier catalogue, this one, M11, is the most distant that can actually be seen with the naked eye, so as a challenge, see if you can spot it unaided. If you can't see it by eye, then grab a pair of binoculars and you may have better luck spotting this star cluster as a triangular patch of light. Continue your journey up along the Milky Way and you'll spot the bright star Deneb from the constellation of Cygnus. Lying next to Deneb is the North American Nebula, an emission nebula located approximately 1,700 light years away. Trust us when we say that you'll definitely want to have a pair of binoculars at hand to enjoy the sights of this deep sky object. 
For those keen on doing some planetary observations, you have plenty to choose from this month. The gas giants Jupiter and Saturn continue to dominate the southern sky in the evenings and are easy to spot by eye. Both planets are also worth a look at through a pair of binoculars or a telescope. Saturn is arguably the most rewarding planet to view through a telescope thanks to its mesmerizing ring system. Joining Jupiter and Saturn are the distant ice giants Uranus and Neptune. Uranus is on the threshold of visibility due to its sheer distance from the Earth. If you have good eyesight and excellent observing conditions, you might just be able to spot it. However, Neptune, with its apparent magnitude of around 7.78, will not be visible without the aid of a telescope. If you'd like to spot the inner planets Mercury and Venus, then have a look towards the west just after sunset on the 10th. You'll see a thin waxing crescent moon lying low above the horizon, and lying to its right, you'll see the evening star, the planet Venus. Mercury lies to the lower right of Venus, but it might be a bit difficult to spot by eye as the planet's faint light will have to compete with twilight. If you've ever wondered where the names of the planets come from, have a look at this month's Night Sky Highlights blog on our website where we dive into a bit of the mythology surrounding the names of the planets. With spring returning to the Southern Hemisphere this month, the number of hours available for stargazing starts to decrease. But the good news is that there are still many wonderful things up in the sky for you to enjoy. Appearing as two fuzzy clouds in the southern sky are the large and small Magellanic clouds. While these fuzzy clouds of stars may appear to belong to our home galaxy, they are in fact galaxies of their own. These two dwarf galaxies are satellite galaxies of the Milky Way. And despite looking like they might be within reach, both of these are far, far away. The Large Magellanic Cloud lies around 180,000 light years from the Earth, while the Small lies at around 200,000 light years distant. The Large Magellanic Cloud is home to the Tarantula Nebula, a star-forming region so massive that if it were placed inside our Milky Way at the location of the Orion Nebula, the Tarantula Nebula would be visible during the day and would cover a quarter of the sky. Lying close to the small Magellanic Cloud is a breathtaking globular cluster called 47 Tucanae, or 47 Tuck for short. This dense stellar swarm is home to hundreds of thousands of stars, all tightly bound by gravity. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. All right, it's now time for our cosmic news, the part of the podcast where Patricia and I bring some astronomical stories from the past month to the podcast and chat through them, talk about a little bit why there may be more interesting than the headline suggests, or perhaps why the headline might be misleading. We've sort of we've sort of taken this and been a bit free with the format, I think. I think so. And of course, it has turned into a competition. Yes, it has, Patricia, which leads to the next question, uh, which is our Twitter poll last month 
I do have the results at hand, Bryony. So just a reminder that in last month's podcast, you spoke about the detection of isotopes at uh, exoplanets. And I spoke about the Hubble Space Telescope and the recent troubles that that space telescope had. And I did keep an eye on the Twitter poll during the week that it was up. And it was a very close battle for the first couple of days. It was sort of oscillating between one story and the, the other and then eventually votes did start going in one direction only so we do have a winner Bryony mm-hmm. with 57 percent of the votes yes the winning story from last month's podcast is all about isotopes at exoplanets. So well done, Bryony. You are on a winning streak at this point. Thank I'm... you very much. I'm really quite happy. I've been I've been putting in quite a bit of effort to these. Patricia can can confirm that there have been several times when I'll I'll text her at some ungodly hour of the night saying, Patricia, I just spent two hours reading about this thing, and I'm going to talk about it in the podcast. Try to make me not be boring. <laughs> well, I'm clearly doing a really good job of that, Bryony. Well, I mean, maybe people yeah. are just as nerdy as I am. Well, I mean, we have, I, to be honest, you have had really good stories recently. And yeah. I mean, it's it, something that is difficult, funnily enough, for each month is actually finding a particular story that makes us go, oh, that's quite interesting. And something that we think, our listeners would be interested in and so some months are really easy because there's stories that pop up straight away where we will latch on to it and other months it's really difficult because obviously we have our own preferences for things that we find interesting uh, and we know that typically I stick close to home that's my realm and you <laughs> go out into the galaxy but may I don't know could we be shaking it up this month, Bryony? Well, I mean, we did actually put off recording this podcast because we, when we originally intended to record, uh, we couldn't find anything that really tickled either of us. We we had a bit of a chat and we thought, well, there's this, but uh, I'm not so sure about it. Oh, this is okay, I guess. And we just thought, you know what, let's just put it off a few days uh, and hope that something has come, that something will come up. Uh, and something has certainly come up for me and I believe it has for you because here's the thing I mean we could just pick a story because there are always stories going that on. that is true exactly in space and astronomy but you know we we do want to try to pick something we're interested in and something has come up that I I really quite liked um and it's it's not exoplanets it's not far out but um you know what I don't think I think I went first last time so I think that Patricia you should kick us off this time we'll have to wait to see what mine is oh Patricia, oh now, you, now you've got me all excited Bryony but yes I'm, I'm happy to to start this month's podcast so my story funnily enough Bryony brace yourself we're leaving the solar system Bryony oh this is exciting Patricia I mean, I, is venturing I out that. I say that it's part solar system but we are venturing out beyond beyond the solar system so this okay. is a realm that I'm not familiar with Bryony or no, that I do, am familiar I was, with but I was going to say Patricia <laughs> What was it that you have your master's thesis in again? I've forgotten. <laughs> All right, it's not the solar system. It's not the solar system, I know. Um, but as everyone who knows me knows, I have a big soft spot for the solar system. Uh, but so for this month, it was a story uh, that 
as you said, Bryony, we were looking for something to talk about. And I spotted this on Twitter. And I know it made me very happy. And when I told you about it, it made you very, very, very happy. So, Bryony, in the year 1995, two amazing events happened. The first, you were born. Correct. Yes. Thank you. And the second was that the first planet orbiting around another star similar to our sun was discovered. I said both events were huge, mm-hmm. of course. Obviously, similar ramifications. Of similar obviously. similar impacts on the universe, Bryony. And, <laughs> uh, but you can imagine this discovery of a planet orbiting around another star was a significant discovery and one that answered a big question that we had at the time, which was, are there other planets or other planetary systems in our own galaxy and by extension in the universe? And that particular discovery led to growth in the field of exoplanet research. And over the years, as our telescopes and instrumentation has improved, the number of known exoplanets has increased considerably. The current number of confirmed exoplanets, and I should add, at the time of recording, because it does change on a daily basis, is 4,472. And the number of candidate planets, so in other words, these are potential exoplanets, but we have to do follow-up observations to confirm if they are actually exoplanets. Well, that number is slightly under 7,700. So that's a huge number. Just a just just a couple to sort through. Just, just a, just bit a few things, box. you know. You know, I want to say it's a grad student somewhere. It's like, yeah, I've got a lot of work to do. Um, <laughs> more like a hundred grad students. Yeah, more there. like a hundred. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's it's amazing to think that in a relatively short period of time, we went from knowing of no other planets in our galaxy to now having a list of thousands of exoplanets. And based on what we've seen so far, scientists now estimate that each star in our galaxy probably has at least one planet orbiting it, which means for our home galaxy, the Milky Way, that at a minimum, there is somewhere between 200 to 400 billion planets in it, which is incredibly mind-boggling to think about. It really is. Like the there's a point at which numbers really do kind of stop making sense. And I think yeah. that past even the 100,000 mark, when you get to the million mark, it starts to get difficult. But billion, that's another three zeros on the end. That whole thing where, you know, one million seconds is like 11 days, but a billion seconds is like 30 years. Yeah, so you're absolutely about- right. So yeah. you you can't, you, you cannot comprehend that number. But long before the first exoplanet was actually discovered, the concept of alien worlds was prevalent in science fiction. For me, my introduction to the idea of strange new worlds and alien civilizations came from Star Trek. And it just so happens that September marks the 55th anniversary of the first broadcast of an episode of Star Trek. And Star Trek is still going boldly. Yes, I'm throwing in the Star Trek jokes, people. As you should be. I mean, we've I've cut a lot of them out because Patricia and I both do really like Star Trek and we make a few jokes. I I cut a few of them out. Some slip through, but but none are being cut out. (laughs) Well, Star Trek 
was created by Gene Roddenberry and he described the show at the time as being a western in space which I think is a really funny description for for the show and Star Trek took viewers into the future took them to the 23rd century and followed the adventures of the crew of the USS Enterprise but what made Star Trek stand out wasn't its setting wasn't its tone it was its cast because Gene Roddenberry had cast a Japanese-American actor, George Takai, to play Lieutenant Hikaru Sulu. And George Takai had actually lived in a U.S.-run internment camp during the Second World War, which is, again, if you think about the times, you can imagine how impactful it was to see a Japanese-American actor on the screen. Not only that... Roddenberry also cast an African-American actress, uh, Nichelle Nichols, to play Lieutenant Nyoto Hura. And at the time that Star Trek aired, so when this was airing in the 60s, it was incredibly rare to see any characters on, of color on TV that weren't just negative stereotypes. Or maids. Yeah. For so many people, seeing characters like, you know, Sulu... Ahura on screen gave people so much hope that there could be a future in which people could be included, where people of all races, you know, could be included and more importantly were treated as equals to those around them. So actually that is that's really interesting, you know, the sort of like all races, all genders just being being part of a, a, a starship and not just being part of a starship but being part of the bridge crew was a big thing but uh Nichelle Nichols actually was thinking of leaving um start the, the original series that's quite, right quite yeah. early on yeah it wasn't that she disliked it she wasn't sort of super into sci-fi or anything but she was primarily a stage actress and that's what she wanted to do and she got a really good stage gig and she thought of leaving she went to Gene Roddenberry and he said is there anything I can do to change your mind like what you are doing here you know you are a black woman on the bridge, treated as an equal. Star Trek actually also showed the first ever interracial kiss. Yes, on they TV, did. And they had to fight for it. Yeah, there were executives high up who said, "We cannot. We you know we can't have this. This isn't this isn't appropriate." Which is just, in hindsight, nowadays, just disgusting. There's yeah. no other word for it. It's 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 disgusting. But um, but you know, Michelle Nichols was like, "Look, I understand this is important, but this is my life." And Gene Romney said, "Okay, well, cool." So they then had this sort of like benefit dinner that weekend uh, and Gene Roddenberry said, oh, um, someone is here who they say that they're your greatest fan. Um, and she's sort of like, oh, yeah, all right, they can, they can come and talk to me, all this. And who goes up to her? But Martin Luther King Jr. and his wow. family and he grabs her by the hand and says, like, I, I am your biggest fan, Miss Nichols. You are incredible. Like me and my family, every week we sit and we watch Star Trek. I, I point to you on screen and say to my kids, see, there is a better world possible. And it's not just me who knows it. This is the future that we can look forward to, a future where a black woman is not a maid, a black woman is not a joke, a black woman is someone to be respected. Yeah. And she said amazing. Exactly. And she said that after that, you know, she went the next, because that was on a Friday and the next Monday, she went up, you know, went up to Jean and said, look, I have you processed my resignation yet? Because I just, I don't think I can leave after that. Uh, and he, of course, said, of course not. Please stay. <laughs> Please stay. Yeah. Um, and so she stayed because, you know, it, 
it really was that impactful. Um, I also love that Martin Luther King Jr. was a Trekkie. Love that. Yeah. Well, um, that's the powerful thing about Star Trek was it spoke to so many people from different backgrounds and it provided that vision of hope for a future that a better future for everyone and it also went on funny enough to inspire so many people to become astronauts if you have a look at people who are astronauts and you ask them what got them into it for the most part it's It's star trek which is really good so of course if you're listening to this podcast you might be wondering well why is she talking about star trek this is a podcast about you know recent news in astronomy and space exploration well there are actually two reasons i'm talking about star trek so the first reason has to do with mr spock even if you're not a fan of star trek or familiar with the show you probably know who mr spock is with the pointy ears and eyebrows eyebrows. if i I just say that i'm pretty sure most people go yeah i know who you're talking about so mr spock is a character is the son of a human mother and a vulcan father and his home planet is the planet vulcan and in the original series and the films that were based on it the star around which this planet orbits was actually never established so all we knew was that he came from this planet but we had no idea where it was in 1991 so before we discovered any exoplanets Gene Roddenberry was the co-author on a letter that was submitted to Sky and Telescope. And the letter was funny enough about what kind of star the planet Vulcan was likely to orbit. So alongside astronomers from the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, they looked at solar type stars that were being monitored for magnetic activity. And so they had a sort of a series of stars that were being monitored and they had a look at a couple of them and they settled on a star called 40 Eridani because its age is similar to our sun's age. So I think 40 Eridani about 4.4 billion years old and their argument was that due to its age with the right conditions if there was a planetary system there the star is old enough that complex life could have evolved turns out that 40 eridani is actually a triple star system so the particular star they were referring to in this triple star system is 40 eridani a And so finally, the fictional planet Vulcan had its star. So it made everyone happy. So Vulcan finally has that star. Now, the really cool thing about Star Trek is how well it's been predicting the future. Technology that was featured in Star Trek that people thought would never exist is now real. And one example of this is your smartphone or your smart tablet that you carry around with you so that you can catch up on news and, of course, listen to our podcast and watch YouTube videos. You know, the standard things you'd use your smart devices for. And there's something else that Star Trek, or at least Gene Roddenberry, predicted and came true. Because in September 2018, astronomers announced that they had discovered an exoplanet about twice the size of the Earth orbiting 40 Eridani A. That means that we have found Vulcan, or at least the real world analog of Vulcan. 
which I'm sorry, that is really cool that, you know, they just randomly chose the star and then it turns out it had a planet orbiting it. So that's something that I like about it is that it wasn't random. I mean, in some ways it was, but they went, okay, well, we, we want something that has these specific characteristics it just so turned out that um there was it was actually a planet there (laughs) so now for the second reason why i'm talking about star trek in this podcast on the 19th of august which would have been gene roddenberry's 100th birthday nasa did something really special using their deep space network which is what they use to communicate with spacecraft out in the solar system NASA broadcast a message out to the 40 Eridani star system. And not just any message. It's a recording of Gene Roddenberry. And I'm going to read this message out. But if you have got the opportunity, please do listen to the actual message that was sent out. So in this message, Gene Roddenberry says, The whole show was an attempt to say that humanity will reach maturity and wisdom on the day that it begins not just to tolerate, but take special delight in differences in ideas and differences in life forms. If we cannot learn to actually enjoy those small differences, to take a positive delight in those small differences between our own kind here on this planet, then we do not deserve to go out into space and meet the diversity that is almost certainly out there. And that is an incredibly powerful message to broadcast out to the stars. And this message is now traveling out into space at the speed of light. And it will take roughly 16 and a half years to travel the distance out to 40 Eridani A to that exoplanet. And who knows, Bryony, maybe someone out there will be listening. So for this month, it's my tribute to Star Trek. Happy 55th anniversary, Star Trek. May you continue to inspire people into science. I know you certainly played a big part in getting me interested in astronomy. And maybe one day humanity will head out to Vulcan. Who knows? Maybe first contact will be reversed. Way in joke for Star Trek fans. There we go. <laughs> oh, I just had to talk about it. The fact that, you know, I know it's not the real planet Vulcan, but in my heart it will be the real planet Vulcan. It's just something nice. And to think that we can do this now, that we can send messages out into the cosmos. I know we've done it before, but it's just really nice. It's not quite subspace transmissions, but no, you know, no. but we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many years into the future was that, Bryony? Where, you know, they got their deep space network going properly, a proper deep space network. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But again, I'm just going to say Star Trek being predicting the future. So watch this space. But from celebrating the universe with Star Trek to, I think, Something that is actually surprisingly close to home, isn't it, Bryony? It is, actually. I have decided to stay inside our solar system for once, um, talking about our nearest star, our sun. Uh, now, this this story is really, really quite fascinating, I think. Um, it is a bit technical, um, so please do bear with me. I will do my best to explain 
uh, all the bits, but there is a little bit of uh, of technical details that we'll need to go into this. So uh, particularly, so uh, I guess the main title for this uh, is the fact that we have solved a paradox to do with our sun, an apparent paradox. Uh, so back in 1996, so th this is a paradox that has been enduring for over 20 years. This is something that has actually been leading some scientists to question our current accepted understanding um, of quantum mechanics and particularly uh, scattering processes and atom and atom photon interactions. So this hasn't been a sort of tiny little paradox. It's been something that seemed to suggest there was something fundamental wrong with the way we were looking at the sun. And we've now, thankfully, technology has come far enough and theory has come far enough that we think we are able to explain it. So when we have a look at the sun's light, not just sort of with our eyes, obviously never do that, but, uh, but when we look at it with spectrometers, we discovered that actually a lot of the light, like most of the light is what we say, we say that it's linearly polarized. So I'll explain polarization in a minute, but when we were taking a closer look at the specific Fraunhofer lines, so that's these specific um, absorption lines in the solar spectrum, we realized that there was a specific absorption line due to sodium, but we thought that this particular absorption line shouldn't actually be possible unless there was a very, very low magnetic field in the chromosphere of the sun. Now, the sun is famous for having quite a lot of magnetic field activity. I was just going to say it's, yes. <laughs> it's got quite a lot of magnetic field activity. Yeah. Uh, and we measure that. However, there was no other way of explaining this particular line until recently. So let's back up quite a lot because we need to explain a little bit. Now, first of all, let's talk a bit about the structure of the sun. So we have the core of the sun. There's lots of different layers to that, but that's where uh, the fusion processes are happening. Now, um, as the fusion processes happen and release energy, those photons, they are uh, do this very, um, very convoluted random walk through the core um, out to the photosphere. So the photosphere is actually what we see of the sun. That's where the visible light comes. Yeah. Why it's so as you say, so effectively the translation would be the light sphere, the sphere of light. So basically what we can actually see, that's what so, exactly. that's actually a good point to raise actually, because sometimes when astronomers talk about the sun, we all say the surface of the sun. Oh. <laughs> and then everyone's like, what do you mean by surface? That's what we um, mean. <laughs> Yeah, the the photosphere. yeah, the surface of the sun is the photosphere. So the photosphere is, um, it's quite um, quite low temperature compared to the sun. It's only about 5,000 degrees. Yeah, I mean, that's nothing, Brian. Yeah, yeah. So the photosphere is just one part. It's the lowest part of what we say the sun's atmosphere. So above that, we have the chromosphere. It's funny because it's also like a light-related thing, but um, it, it it's what the light from the photosphere sort of makes its way through, is scattered through. Um, and it's partially because of the chromosphere and partially from things going back through the photosphere um, that a lot of the light um, is polarised. And then beyond the, photo the chromosphere, we have the corona. So core, photosphere, chromosphere, corona. What we're interested in here is talking about uh, the photosphere and then the lower chromosphere. So going back to this whole thing about um, absorption lines of sodium. Now, we don't have to talk a bit about spectroscopy now. So as atoms are excited, that is, they gain energy, then what actually happens 
for the most part, broadly speaking, uh, is that the electrons that live in the um, orbital shells around the nucleus, um, they will jump to different energy levels. That roughly translates to different arrangements and different distances away from the nucleus of the atom. And depending on how much energy um, electrons gain, that dictates how far away from the nucleus they can move. And because of quantum mechanics, because it's all discrete, they can only absorb at very specific energy levels. And so what this means is if you have a roughly uniform spectrum, which is what we get from the center of the sun, because the, because the photons have to go through such a random walk to get out, you end up with a relative, relatively uniform spectrum. As the photons travel through the photosphere, which is slightly cooler, then elements in the photosphere, atoms in the photosphere, will absorb at very specific wavelengths of light. Uh, and we can observe this. If we look at the photosphere and we look at the spectrum, we will see these gaps in the spectrum. And they denote places where we can see different elements absorbing specific wavelengths of light. Now, those specific wavelengths of light depend on a whole number of, of things. And we need to remember that inside our, our atoms, our electrons live in very, very complicated shell structures, very, yeah. very complicated shell structures that also are actually impacted by any magnetic fields that are around them. That can split the energy levels. Then we also have this thing called hyperfine splitting, which arises from a coupling between the nucleus uh, of the atom and the electron orbitals. And again, exacerbated by any nuclear spins. And you, you end up with this very, very complicated energy level system where things will absorb and then emit. And by looking at the wavelengths that are absorbed, you can calculate how much energy is absorbed. So you can calculate what the energy levels that the electrons are moving between are. So the one that we are looking at in particular is looking at the sodium, it's called the D1 line. Now, this is quite confusing because it's called the D1 line for historical reasons, because uh, back when um, Mr. Fraunhofer, can't remember his first name, hey, but Joseph, I think. Joseph? Joseph? Yeah. Probably Joseph Fraunhofer. That, that sounds about right, I think. That does sound about right. Yeah, yeah. Well, old mate Fraunhofer, um, he built up this this map of all of the absorption lines he could see from the photosphere, um, and he just, he labelled them. Uh, and these got labelled as the sodium D lines. Uh, it's worth noting that they are not actually arising, for, for those of you who know about electron orbitals, uh, they're not actually arising from transitions it's in your D orbitals, your D. Yeah. In your D orbitals, because nothing makes sense. Um, but yeah. the thing about these, um, this specific transition, specifically the D1 transition and the D2 transition, is that the only reason that we have this separation is because of this thing called hyperfine splitting, uh, which is, uh, again, a, basically a, a, a link, a coupling between your uh, nucleus and your electron energy levels. So we've got some of the bits that we need to explain the kind of word salad I said at the start, but let's keep going uh, and talk about polarization. Now, polarization is it's a bit of a confusing concept, but it's essentially to do with whether or not the direction of travel of a wave is in any way related to the direction of oscillation of the wave. Um, so the light that we receive from the sun is polarized, it's linearly polarized, but basically by the time it makes its way through the Earth's atmosphere, um, it's no longer polarized, it's unpolarized light. So when you put on a polarized pair of sunglasses, what it's actually doing is it's cutting out light of a specific polarization. What that results in is cutting down on the intensity of the light. Yeah. 
So that's essentially how you can think about polarization is it's, it's just another property of light. And if you cut out one particular polarization, then you'll cut out some amount of the light. Yeah. And polarization results from many different things when it comes to light, um, whether your light is linearly polarized or circularly polarized, it depends on the spin of the photons. Don't worry about that though. The important thing is though, that the, the light from the sun is linearly polarized, which is fine. And we kind of were like, that's all good. We're measuring that. That's fine. However, for most of the Fraunhofer lines that we see, that's fine. But there's something wrong with this because you see, for us to be observing this, that suggests that there is some polarization in the atomic levels. However, there's a problem here because we don't think that atomic level polarization, particularly uh, of ground levels, such as you see in uh, the, low, the lower state of your sodium D1 transition, we don't think that they can survive in magnetic fields. In fact, we know they can't survive in higher magnetic fields, such as those we find on the surface of the sun. So this is strange. So basically we're seeing something and we, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, yeah. For those conditions to occur, we would need no magnetic field, but we measure a magnetic field. And this is this paradox that's been very confusing because these atom-photon interactions, as we currently understand them, that suggests that we need this ground state polarization. And if we don't have that, then we shouldn't be seeing this polarization. Yeah. We shouldn't be seeing this population imbalance. So the question is, well, how do we manufacture this imbalance in polarization states without relying on an imbalance uh, in ground state polarization. But thankfully, um, some researchers uh, from the Instituto Riace Solari Locano in Switzerland and the Instituto do Astrofisica de Canarias in Spain have now actually managed to resolve this conflict, basically by going back to first principles, having a look at these atom-photon interactions and redoing them. The key is that they were looking at this sort of updated view of atom-photon interactions because uh, previous attempts to do this, previous attempts to sort of say, oh, well, maybe it's because of other scattering processes had failed. Basically these scattering processes, they kind of suggested that the light should be unpolarized and they were like, oh no, so there's no possible way of doing it. Oh, what's yeah. happening? But they realized that, that because of the anisotropy of the light at the photosphere, at the level of the photosphere and chromosphere, because they're not receiving it from all directions, because of that, if you have a look at their up, dated theory of atom-photon interactions and you then put it in this very very uh, sort of this environment where there's lots of elastic collisions happening because of all that together you are able to end up with an imbalance in your polarization without having to rely on this very delicate ground state polarization uh, i mean i'm that's a very I'm glad they solved it because my brain is still trying to process like the fact that we first of all we had that paradox yeah which your brain is like I don't understand and I can imagine there being that problem because you'd hope you'd be able to explain it but the fact that they now have something yeah the fact that they've gone okay well we don't need we don't need this ground state polarization. Yeah. We can do it, but we, we don't need to be relying on this because th that was the problem is that it's very sensitive to magnetic fields and called the Hanley effect. Um, so it's very, very, very um, susceptible to magnetic fields or to being destroyed by magnetic fields. Yeah. Which obviously causes a problem. But now they've been able to say, okay, well, if we have taken into account the anisotropy, then 
uh, your anelastic collisions and all of that, then you are able to reach a point where you can end up with an imbalance in your scattering polarization. And so therefore no paradox, no more. <laughs> no paradox, no more. It's, it's really impressive though that, you know, if you think back, just again, oh, let's be honest, Bryony, just in terms of understanding of quantum mechanics, because we've, I mean, what, it's been a century now. It's another example of a field that relative to other fields is actually still young and there's still many things we don't understand, as I'm sure you can attest to, Bryony, there's still some bits that we go, hmm, do we? Do we know? Do we not know? But it's amazing how we can use that to try and solve these kind of paradoxes that we're seeing. And, and again, if we're looking at our studies of objects, I think sometimes people think because we've got the sun up close, because we've got the star up close, we therefore understand everything about stars. And the fact is actually there's quite a bit that we don't know, even just by looking at our own sun. Exactly. I mean, and I think part of this is just the intersection of so many fields. <laughs> it is. I was going to say, again, because I'll go back to things. So if we're talking about the sun, people probably don't necessarily think quantum. No, it's, <laughs> it's deeply quantum. Um, yeah. Understanding how the sun works and the different layers of the sun. And, you know, for all it's this, ma it's, it is massive, but it's massive and therefore creates these very unique conditions where atoms and just subatomic particles no longer behave in the way that we're used to. Well, I will say to any of this is if you're ever keen on um, just actually understanding that history, it's certainly worthwhile having a read about how we moved fairly quickly, I think, once you had all these great minds thinking about tiny things that we started to understand what we were seeing in terms of the lights that we were studying from the sun. I mean, it, it's amazing. It's a really interesting read. So I certainly encourage anyone who might have that interest to, to read up on, on just the history of understanding the lights that we were getting from the sun and what that meant. And that the fact that stars like our sun were not powered by people living on it and feeding it wood to burn that it and, and people might be la laughing at this point but that's what a couple of people thought because well you know, that's all they knew that's what yeah again because you're looking at real world references because what on the earth is a natural occurring thing that produces heat and light oh it's a fire fires need fuel so therefore the sun is a fire and it needs fuel so someone must be fueling the sun so it's not a difficult leap, but, you know, we laugh now, but, you know. People are going was... to be laughing at us, I'm sure, in many years. I, I suspect that's the case. I'll listen back and go, oh, listen to our ancestors thinking they understood everything, you know. Well, a, a great story. Thank you, Bryony. And, again, just showing you that as much as we think we know stuff, we don't stuff and why astronomy is a field that is just going to continue growing because again we think we know everything but we don't so two i mean interesting stories and weirdly briny and i have transitioned over i left the solar system behind and briny came into the solar system i mean i heard the siren call of quantum and that brought you home <laughs> It'll always I, be I heard the word Vulcan and I left the solar system in a hurry. That's you know. 
<laughs> but yes, we have these two great stories for you to choose from in our Twitter poll, which will go live in the first week of the month. So do keep an eye on our Twitter account at ROG Astronomers and remember to cast your vote. But that's it, Bryony. We've reached the end of this month's podcast. Yes, we have reached the end of this month's podcast. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And I hope you are graced with some dark skies. Thank you.